the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a couple places. We did learn yesterday that Brian Fromm will not be at Baskin-Robbins, so uh-uh. don't, don't even look for him there. Dairy Queen, though. Good chance that I'll be at any of those places serving anything that even remotely resembles ice cream. My wife brought home a Portillo's shake last night. Ooh. Delicious. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And those she said, decadent. subpar. She was, what was it like the cake shake? Uh, I do they have different kinds of shakes? I don't even. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I believe they've got like your normal vanilla or the dis- chocolate. The disappointment in your tone, you're like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Where are you from? Listen. And so <laughs> Detroit. The, I'm the not cake, from here. The neither am I. But the cake shake is, uh, it's a milkshake with like their famous chocolate cake, almost kind of blended up into it. And so I'm having a hard time like thinking of it. the decadence. It's it's hard to think of anything more American. <laughs> no, than, if there's a cheeseburger in there with a flag sticking out. <laughs> Do you know what lacks decadence? A milkshake. I know. Let's add some cake to it. That, that'll really up the nutritional value. My my wife did say though. She said steak and shakes much better. That was her vote. So steak and shakes are, are those are good. Those are good. Well, I said shake is in the title, so of course it's going to be. Yeah. No. Not always true. Sometimes there can be that false advertising. But I like I like the steak and shake, and uh, like a waffle at Waffle House, not that great. Yeah, but uh, I, I do. I I'm not very big. I love shakes basically from anywhere. So I'm uh, I'm good with that. Oberweiss You're equal opportunity shakeist. Oberweiss <laughs> where they stick that cookie thing in there. It's good. Mm. It's good. It's good. And then uh, that's very Oberweiss of you to go there. My, <laughs> there we went. No. My uh, my wife uh, introduced me to the malt. I didn't. I was not a malt fan until she she was like, I like a malt, and now I kind of like a malt. So it's just the malt powder that makes it a malt, though, right? There's mm-hmm. no like. Malt liquor. There's no, <laughs> no. no like hocus pocus, something in the process that makes it different than just the powder. I think so. so <sighs> hard hitting stuff, such people. Such a weird conversation. Text us. Favorite shake. Go. Don't even bother texting us anymore. No one's texting. The text line is dead. I, to no, us. I'm, I'm declaring the text line dead. 68683. Favorite cake. You can favorite do it, shake. but I'm canceling it. I'm canceling the text line. You can text Brian at whatever yes. whatever his number is. Uh, you can find us on Facebook if you want, though. The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com or wherever it is you get your podcast. If you're listening to a podcast right now, you realize, oh, he's talking to me. Yeah. If you would just like and subscribe and review. And text us. jeez. <laughs> oh, we have derailed. Anywho, yesterday felt like a heavy day, and sometimes I just feel like we need a palate cleanser. Yeah. We just need to, we kind of dove into it. There was uh, some controversy online, even, if you can imagine. So, today, a little bit of a palate cleanser. Here's the headline. A sorority cancels its convention because of Hurricane Barry. Members donated 17,000 meals to storm victims. Mm-hmm. What's going on there? So, if you've been following the news, Hurricane Barry uh, has... Uh, 
uh, just dumped a ton of water down in Louisiana. Come on, Barry. (laughs) And uh, I just am always fascinated. Flooding, like those pictures of flooding where people are literally like in kayaks or boats or and I always feel so bad because you see the people putting up their um, the sandbags and you're like, man, that's just going over. Like That's just it's so hard to watch. And, uh, you know, Jim Cantori or Al Roker is just standing in the middle of it or something. Uh, as an aside, I saw a clip where there was such bad flooding down there that uh, just like in uh, Chicago here, there was an alligator randomly swimming around. That's like, what okay. is with these random gators? <laughs> the random alligator. Is there a gator displacement program that I'm not I'm not <laughs> aware just, of? Or what? <laughs> there's paperwork. Sir, we're taking you to Humble Park. <laughs> yeah, You're right. Right. There. <laughs> Gentrifying the gators. I don't understand. I don't get it. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, but in the midst of this. Uh, the um, sorority Delta Sigma Theta sorority scrambled Friday to wrap oh, up. Oh, come on. Next... You got to give it more pizzazz than that. <laughs> you and I were just discussing how would we say Delta Sigma Theta. <laughs> how would you say it? Come on, you got to do it. I wouldn't say no, it. No, you wouldn't. No, please continue with the story. <laughs> Delta Sigma Theta sorority scrambled Friday, it says, to wrap up its national convention early to escape the storm's impact in New Orleans. So they're in New Orleans uh, and they're doing their convention there. Uh, but their caterer called Center Plate wasn't about to let the meals that had been prepared for members to go to waste. So the group donated uh, 17,000 meals to the Second Harvest Food Bank of South Louisiana. That's awesome. Which will then store them in a cooler through the storm and give them to residents who uh, who weatherberry. Oh, that's a good pun right there. Who weatherberry, <laughs> uh, the food bank said. Uh, and so it was uh, it was just kind of a cool way they the, the loss of having to cancel the convention but the food's already been paid for so rather than just going oh whatever whatever i don't care what happens to it they made the collective decision let's donate the food and help people and it's just a reminder again and we you know as churches we always talk about or or even not churches just people like how can we help people who are hurting and sometimes it's not rocket science, right? Sometimes you don't have to be able to help everybody to be able to help anybody. And so right. they said, hey, this food could help somebody. And uh, and, and that's what they're going to do. Uh, kind of a heartwarming story. When you when I read more than 77,000 Louisiana residents are without power and some towns are already experiencing heavy rainfall and flooding. You know, this article is a couple of days old now, but I like it reminds me again how little experience I have with this specific kind of issue yep i've only ever lived you know in the midwest so it it is surprising to me sometimes that this kind of stuff happens and happens so frequently but it it does also really warm my heart that people because you know i worked at a starbucks for a long time Mm -hmm. maybe i'm not supposed to say the name yeah so part of the issue i'm literally drinking starbucks right now that's true well done (laughs) brought to you by starbucks uh no it's not it's not brought to you (laughs) by but uh, I know that there's all sorts of like weird legal hurdles when it comes to uh, food at the end of its expiration date and what you can and can't give away. And, like when I was in college, I used to I used to dumpster dive. The least uh, surprising thing I've heard. Yeah, don't, donuts and bagels uh, twice a week. I'd get a whole bag of them and I'd bring them back to the dorm and I just like. I'd hand them out like I was the Santa Claus of the pastry world. Like, did, just, any, did anybody would anybody turn them down? Like, oh, they came from a dumpster. Were they in like, a freshman guy's dorm? I of course think not. So, but no. there, I felt like there'd be that guy. No, and it was like <laughs> literally in a trash bag. So yeah. it was the least appealing it could possibly be. And those suckers were gone every time. But I know that um, there are other like shelters and organizations that can't they can't take uh, food after the expiration date, you know, so a lot of this stuff gets wasted. So it does make me really glad to hear a story like this, where they were actually able to successfully donate 
17,000 like, yeah. quality meals to people that need them because so often the quality is often what's lacking, yeah. you know, in these sorts of like, you know, rescue efforts. And I think, I don't know how that relates to us here in Chicagoland, but it does actually warm my heart. Like, oh, yeah. there are still good people in the world doing good things with the resources. And sometimes the answer is just to be thoughtful. I've uh, a couple of weeks ago, we did every year or kind of at the kickoff of the summer, we do just a barbecue in the church parking lot after church. <clears throat> and, uh, we it was literally just all hot dogs, right? Hot dogs and right. chips and whatever else. Yeah, yeah. We'd a ton of hot dogs left over because you always overbuy for those things, right? Right. And uh, there was a guy who was helping clean up, and I was just about to chuck all the pot, all the hot dogs. Mm. He's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "Nobody wanted to take them home. Like they're cooked. Like what are you going to do right. with these?" And he wrapped them up, and he's like, "I know the shelter down in the city that will take these, and that this will really help them." And I was like. You have like that immediate feeling of guilt, like, oh, never yeah. even crossed my mind. Right. I'm too, the pastor, like, too. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and too, it, just the thoughtfulness, just going, hey, I know the shelter that will take. And so sometimes it's just a little bit of legwork, maybe before the barbecue, calling around and going, hey, well, we're likely going to have food left over. Would you like this? And then take it. Sometimes it's just time and effort. It's not it's not uh, rocket science. And, uh, and And then, you know, that shelter in the city on that particular day. Uh, was helped by the hot dogs we didn't eat. So yeah, sometimes right. it's just taking some thought and actually thinking about it. Well, and you know, my mother-in-law was on the show a couple of weeks ago yeah. and she started a homeless ministry called Timothy's Ministry. Highly recommend you check it out if you haven't. But she tells stories every week of the crazy types of donations that people make. And so often they're like, well, I don't know if this would be helpful or not. And in her mind, she's like, yeah, of course this would be helpful. Yes. And so often if you just don't know, you don't know. So yeah, maybe that's uh, that's a good takeaway. You never know how helpful or useful you could be in any given day to just be mindful of it, to have your eyes open to the opportunities, big and small, that we can actually give back to make our world just a little bit better. Well, coming up next, a a story that may end up being surprising to you and how Brian and I land on this, but the headline is this, uh, have we made Bible study too simple? Brian and I are going to talk about that coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. Brian is dancing again. Something is in the water this week. You are all about the dance party. I am. Something, uh, you know, we we, off, we trade chairs and today I'm sitting in the one uh, kind of with our back towards the towards the glass and uh-huh. no, one, no one can see me. I feel like a little more liberated and <laughs> this is the one you're always dancing into. Like, I feel like this has turned into the dance chair. I, it, I think you might be right. There's, there's a certain level of comfort in that there chair though. You don't have to get in and out of segments. It's a lot less stressful. You just sort of like, you know, hang out a little bit. Yep. It is funny, though, because people are walking by past the glass they do. all the time. But in this chair, you can't see them. That's right. And I forget sometimes how uh, easily distracted I am because people will wave. People are so sweet. Every now and anyway, then I'll but... be in the middle of saying something and you just wave. And I'm like, like, what? <laughs> what <just> happened? <laughs> yeah, what happened? And then I do that to you, too. I know. It's true. All right. So, uh, so Missio Alliance is uh, a blog and organization that I've actually really come to respect and appreciate the last year or so. Okay. And uh, this was written back in May, but I still think it's really timely. The The headline is, uh, have we made Bible study too simple? So, of course, I'm reading that thinking, All right, I'm at least intrigued. I'm really curious from a Missio Alliance perspective, what are they going to say? So I'm just going to read a little bit. Go for it. And then we'll we'll kind of dive into it because I, I can't imagine you don't have opinions about this. <laughs> so uh, it starts by saying, I couldn't believe my ears. I sat at the table with someone who was trying to explain their understanding of a few New Testament passages. They asked me how I understood them. And as I shared how I looked at the context and the original language, they paused and said, aren't you just using the cultural context of the passage to explain away its clear and obvious meaning? If you have to study it that much, then it's probably not what it means. 
At the moment, I was a bit taken back. This shut down the conversation. It was before my days in seminary, and honestly, I wasn't equipped with a good answer. Is the Bible meant to be simple for all to understand? I believe wholeheartedly in Bible access for all people, for teaching young children the mystery of the gospel, and that everyone, no matter their ability to read, should get to experience the wonders of Jesus. But have we Mm. taken the simplicity of the gospel and Bible access for all too far? Mm. Does this simplicity imply that its meaning should be plain and clear without study? I'm just going to stop there and ask you what you think about that question. Uh, I think it's a great question and one that, like you said, just by the way you phrased it, brings up, makes us feel uncomfortable. I think, the, like they said, the overall message of the Bible is clear. But I do think, uh, and I really learned this uh, when I went to Wheaton and was a Bible major, like if we hold the Bible to be what it is, uh, and, and we love it as much as we say that we do, then we need to be willing to study and do the work. Not everybody needs to be a Greek scholar or a Hebrew scholar. There right. are great, uh, uh, I must have cheats out there, right? But there are, there are great <laughs> cheats, <laughs> uh, commentaries and other things to help us understand. But to say that we could just open up our Bible and automatically understand everything we're reading is just, uh, is is short-sighted, and it's not our, uh, none of us would say that's actually how it works anyway. Like, if we love the Bible as much as we do, then then we do need to be willing to dig in and do work, and uh, let me just use the word study. Like, we need to treat it like, it like it needs to be digested and understood. So it's not a puzzle. I don't think the Bible's a puzzle like, uh, you know, like a Nicolas Cage movie where, sure. where you can't know anything that it's saying without getting your decoder ring. But I do also think like there are things in the Bible that are hard to understand yeah. and, and you can't just open it up and be like, okay, read it. Oh, that's, uh, I know everything that I just read. It takes not just prayer and community, but it, it takes study. It takes work. It takes, yeah, and it does take some work. Uh, but that's w- one of the reasons why we say it's so valuable. It's worth doing the work. And I think it's, this isn't a great analogy. I just thought of it, though. It'd be sort of like just like sprinting past a Picasso or a Van Gogh. And like, like it. on your way past, you're like, yeah, I get it. Yep. Stars in the sky. I, I understand yep. it. Like, no, nobody really, else tell me anything differently. Right. There's something to be said about just sitting with it, sitting in it and letting it actually speak something to you and to change you. And I, lo- I love what she says. She says, what is clear to us and the conclusions we draw are based around our own perception and cultural assumptions. Without proper study, we can draw numerous conclusions from passages in the Bible that are shaded by our own limited perspectives and biases. While translations are an amazing tool that make the Bible accessible to us, a translation can only go so far. The nuance of the word in the original language sometimes has a very specific meaning that is difficult to convey in translation. It is extremely important that we're not drawing conclusions, especially conclusions that could restrict or harm others without proper study. And even as a teacher, Like I've had to really stop and think about how many times in a sermon I say something like, well, actually in the Greek, we're Mm. actually in the Hebrew. I love doing that. And I love the etymology of a word, but I realized if I do that too much, what I'm subtly conveying is don't read this for yourself. I'll tell you what the actual Greek is, what the actual Hebrew is. And I don't think that's always all that helpful. In fact, she goes on to say, 
I agree with the reformers. The gospel is for all people. The message of redemption and reconciliation in Christ is completely clear. However, if the clarity of scripture is meant to defend the idea that anyone can read the Bible simply in our English translation and understand it without much study, then why did Calvin take the time to write his extensive institutions of the Christian religion to teach doctrine and the Bible to others? Whether we agree with the doctrines taught in institutions or not, it was quite a lot of work for one man if he believed that the Bible was clear enough that it did not require deep study and reflection. I think we have perhaps over the passing of time simplified the study of the Bible too much in the name of making the Bible accessible for all people. And it has actually served to harm many. So so he ends just with like three challenges. And I'd love for us just to kind of wrap up with that because I think they're, they're helpful tools for any of us to take. Why Why don't you take number one? Yeah. First one says this, read and study the Bible with people who are not like you. Yes. This has transformed how this author says she experiences the Bible. My presuppositions that I bring to my reading of scripture without even realizing it come to light when I hear another perspective. And so, you know, this is the echo chamber thing. Like, get out of it. So I would say first, read your Bible with other people like that. Part of the problem is we often just read it. Right. Just me and God. I'm just I'm just reading. And that there's important thing to, to just your individual study. But be in context where you're discussing the Bible with other people. You're chewing on it. You're debating it. You're discussing it. But even beyond that, what this author is saying is. Do that with people who don't think the same way you do, who may not look the same way you do, who were not raised the same way you do. And you're going to realize they don't read the Bible the same way you do. And then that only adds a depth and another layer to this kind of this conversation. Absolutely. Number two, she says, equip others to study and teach the Bible. While it seems natural to equip those who show a giftedness in teaching and how to study and teach the Bible, I believe this is a basic skill that is important for anyone. It's part of discipleship. It is part of engaging the world and living incarnation with others it also helps to open up spaces to hear the voices of those who often get marginalized and you don't have a voice in theological practice we are all working out our salvation together are you looking to the young people in your community mm. and teaching them how to study the bible the women as well as men have opportunity to develop their gifts as well as learn how to exegete scripture are those with disabilities equipped to study the scriptures and give an opportunity to develop their gifts and be full partners in the church this means taking special notice of all people to truly equip them in their study of scripture, which I think is brilliant. It's great. It's great. And there's a third one and it goes along with what we talked about earlier, but a little different read and elevate theologians of color, women, theologians and other minority theologians. Their voices are so important. Read widely and deeply. I guess I'd ask this is when you're reading commentaries, when you're reading Christian authors, when you're reading Bible studies, is it all the same type of person? Yeah. But it, I think what this author is saying is read across a bigger spectrum uh, so that, again, it, it causes you to wrestle think with things in the text that maybe you wouldn't have re- wes- uh, wrestled with originally. Yeah, she, she wraps it up beautifully. She says, theology isn't meant to be done in a vacuum. Yes. It takes community and practice. I very much believe that theology is a public practice where we can discern the spirit together and strengthen each other through what we have studied in the word and how we live it out. It takes away the blind spots and personal biases that we may lay on top of scripture and helps to make clear what God is saying through his word. I just want to shout amen throughout amen. this whole segment. It, yeah. is so, it is so well written and so 
accessible, ironically, even in how she writes yeah. it. It's not combative. It's just, for me, this is such a good starting point for not only leaders, but churches and students to better take these principles yeah. and apply it into our lives. And to know that the Bible is worth studying and the Bible is worth doing the work over. That's right. Well, coming up next, unfortunately, Dwight Gooden has been arrested for cocaine possession. And we're going to talk a little bit, not only about that story, but some of what it means for us to kind of see some of our heroes yep. fall pretty dramatically, especially in a public sphere. So we're going to unpack that idea a little bit coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. You guessed it. Brian Fromm's here. I'm here. He's not in the long. He's not dancing. He's nope. here, though. He's hanging out. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com. Plus, wherever it is you get podcasts. If you are a podcast listener and you've liked and reviewed it and subscribed it, uh, we really, really appreciate it. That helps us out a ton. And I mentioned a little bit earlier that Dwight Gooden has been arrested for cocaine possession, which in and of itself is already a sad story. And uh, we'll get to this part eventually because uh, you may be surprised to know this. But some of Brian's heroes from his childhood <laughs> have, <laughs> have struggled in have life. Struggled. Yeah, we'll, we'll put it that way. But I want to talk a little bit later about what we do when these people that we like hold in high esteem yes. get into like real serious trouble and like kind of the rift that it causes. But why don't yep. you first tell us a little bit about this story? It is sad. I've talked about this often here. I grew up in the in the eighties in New Jer- uh, northern New Jersey, so just outside New York City. And uh, so I was a diehard and still am a diehard New York Mets fan. Right. Uh, and so Dwight Gooden was kind of the pinnacle of Mets fandom for all kids in the 80s. And uh, but in, in 1986, when they won the World Series, he got hooked on cocaine. He has written books about this uh, to the point that he even missed the Mets World Series parade that year because he was uh, he was high and just passed out in his drug dealer's right. apartment. It's the saddest story you'll ever read. Right. And uh and so much of Gooden's career, which ended up with good stats, he was he was going to be a Hall of Famer. Twenty years old, went twenty four and four, rookie yes. of the year, Cy Young, and uh, his everything just kind of derailed. And he's been battling drug uh, addiction since since nineteen eighty six. And uh, in the last, I would say, five years, he's been pretty vocal out there. Uh, I in fact listened to an interview with him about a month ago or two months ago, in which he talked about a struggle. It's always a struggle, but. You know, kind of he had been doing a good job, if you will, conquering the demons. He, yeah, right. he has not fallen. And that's why, man, honestly, it was such a gut punch. I was actually surprised how sad it made me to read the headline on Twitter really? the other day that Dwight Gooden got arrested for cocaine possession. And it said he was arrested on suspicion of possession of cocaine. According to the complaint, Gooden, who's now 54, had two small plastic baggies containing suspected cocaine in his possession when he was stopped for a traffic violation. He'd also been charged with possession of drug paraphernalia and driving under the influence. And when I read this, Ugh. I was so sad. Yeah. Like it really made me sad. And, and you, you touched on it before, like kind of the fall of our heroes. When I was a kid, I had m- multiple different posters in my room, like a kid does with their sports heroes. Right. But I had, a couple that were consistent. One of them was Michael Jordan, because all kids, even if you didn't live in Chicago, you liked Michael Jordan. We didn't. Oh, you're from Detroit. That's right. Yeah, you're like the one area. That in Cleveland. <laughs> that in Cleveland. Uh, but I don't know. I don't want to get into it. Michael Jordan's personal life leads a lot to be desired. desired we'll just yeah. leave it at yeah, that. Yeah, sure. Uh, but that, he hung on my wall. Lawrence Taylor, from my favorite football team, hung on my wall. Mm-hmm. Terrible guy, mm-hmm. uh, but maybe the greatest defensive player of all time. He was right. like my football hero growing up. 
And the third poster was Dwight Gooden. Hmm. And uh, I can still picture to this day his long stride, that poster. And Dwight Gooden just, and, and like my favorite baseball team of all time, the 1986 Mets, there has literally been a book written about them called The Bad Guys One, which is a phenomenal book if you're really? into sports, bi- sports kind of biographies and sports years, called The Bad Guys One about Dwight Gooden, Daryl Strawberry, Kevin. It's crazy, right. Lenny Dykstra. Uh, and so there is this wrestling of like, huh, these were the guys that I like. These were the teams that I idolized. Right. You looked up to them. Idolized. I mean, I had a Lawrence Taylor jersey. And uh, and to see now to become an adult yeah. and look back on these guys and you're like, oh, it almost feels like I know we all know that these guys aren't perfect. But like my heroes were like not perfect. <laughs> right. Like you probably grew up idolizing, you know. Dennis Rodman. Cecil Fielder. Cecil Fielder. It's <laughs> a big boy right there. Yes. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know. What I was just struck. I will leave it at this. I was struck by how deeply when I turned on Twitter the other day and read that headline of how sad it made me and how much I wished it wasn't true. And I'm a 42-year-old guy. Yeah, right. It's just really crazy. I don't think the age honestly has anything to do with it for me because your childhood hero is your childhood hero. Yep. yep. Or, or collection of heroes. I. But I'm interested in, and maybe this is like four or five questions that we don't have time to get into, but one, why why are athletes such easy heroes for us? Yep. I could think of a couple of responses. Like we, they're larger than life. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've shown great commitment and perseverance to get to that level. You don't, you don't fall accidentally backwards into being a superstar athlete. You know, you know how right. sometimes people have just like a natural singing ability or, you know, they still cultivate, but you can, you can somehow sometimes be accidentally great at those things. Professional sports requires a pretty unmistakable level of like discipline. Right. And I think that's, there's an honoring to that. But why do you think we so quickly and so universally, not just look up to, but idolize uh, the men and women of athletics? Yep. And, and then subsequently, why are we always so baffled when they sometimes turn out to not be great ethical people? Exactly. I think uh, so. A couple different things come to mind for me. One, most, uh, especially young boys, um, want to be athletes, like want to be professional athletes, at least the ones that I knew, right? Like, oh, I want to be a baseball player. Oh, I want to be Michael Jordan. Oh, I yeah, want to be right. uh, Cecil Fielder. Uh, Cecil Fielder. And so um, that's already kind of idolizes because these are the guys who are doing it. Like they're the ones you're watching on TV all the time. And then especially when you're a kid, you don't even realize that they might have, they, they don't, not only might they have like, dark personal lives. Most of the time you don't even realize they have personal lives, right? Oh like, yeah. Right. It's, it's the guy who hits home runs. It's right. the guy who throws strikes and mm. we romanticize it. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're just the guys who win the games that I really care about. And, right. uh, that's all they are. You mm-hmm. know, it reminds me, it's, it's totally different, but I remember when my wife, uh, before we had kids, my wife was a elementary school PE teacher. Uh, and so she had lots of kids come through her class and I remember being out to dinner with her. We we had no kids at the time. We were out to dinner and a little kid came up to her with these wide eyes hmm. and was like, oh, Mrs. Fromm. And the mom said, yeah, he just said he thought you lived at the gym. Like that you, oh, really? he was so surprised to see you out and about. <laughs> kind of the same concept with athletes, right? Like yeah. and when you're a little kid, you're like, I don't know. They, they just play sports and they're perfect and they win the games I care about. And that's what I want to be when I grow up. And you can kind of see how you romanticize them as a little kid. Uh, and then you read like, oh, you got, I remember, I'll remember being young and it being like Dwight Gooden was suspended for the first month of mm. the season because he failed a cocaine test. And you're like, what? what? 
I'm a like, hero. Right. I'm like 10 years old. I don't have, I can't get that around Does my not head. compute, right. So do, it's, do you get some weird. of that as a pastor, do you think? Do you, do you have oh, yeah. some of that sense toward you? Like, wait a minute, you grocery shop? Like, what do you, you're I, at the fair? Or who are, I thought you lived at the church. I think it's with kids a little bit. And then also, I think people assume stuff about how we live our lives that are, yeah. that are probably a little strange if they saw that, you know, our lives are pretty normal and they're, yeah. they're pretty much the same. The bigger deal is radio. I mean, radio celebrity. I mean, come on. <laughs> I want to distance myself as much I as I can. Actually, I do too. From that. Actually, too too. You said it. You said it. But it does go back because it is the weird thing, especially if you were the athlete. What is what is your responsibility? Right. Charles Barkley famously had that commercial in the 90s. Uh, I'm not a role model. Yeah, right. And I do struggle with that. Like we've talked about that with politicians and pastors, but especially athletes. They just put a ball in a hoop or hit a ball over a wall or strike out. And about some it. of them are doing awesome things in the world a with their fame and with them. their wealth. They're leveraging their authority. Read locally, read about Anthony Rizzo right yes. now. That guy Holy. is so impressive. And there's more people I would say doing that. I think you're right. Than what we're discussing. I, I just right. happened to follow the worst collection of people as my childhood team <laughs> growing up <laughs> the, uh, the mid eighties met. So yeah, all of this comes up because I just felt really weird about it. This yeah. week. Just a really, a 42-year-old guy getting getting really, uh, again, you said age doesn't really matter in it, but being legitimately sad by one of my childhood kind of quote-unquote heroes uh, falling again. L- Let hard. me just publicly affirm you, though. I think that's totally legitimate. Someone that you held up as this idol, as this role model, as a kid, that yeah. like harkens back to a different time in your life, and I think... I think it's it's good to feel that tension. You should feel sad about yeah, it. It'd be yeah. weird if you didn't, I think. If you're like, well, don't care about him anymore because I'm not 12. You're like, no, that, <laughs> that is sad. That breaks my heart. Not just because yeah. you looked up to him, but because it's like it's a human being that's struggling. Yeah, but and like it, when I saw they did an interview with him about two months ago, I was like, I'm listening to that. Like it was just yeah. Dwight Gooden holds a really special place in my heart. I totally get that. All right. Hard right turn coming up next. Absolutely. The most important chapter in the entire Bible. You're not going to want to miss it. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and I mentioned it just a little earlier. Here's the headline. Uh, Absolutely the most important chapter in the entire Bible. And I would... Okay, so you've already read it, Brian, but let's, let's let's just make believe. Let's pretend you haven't read this. What would you say? Do would you have a most important chapter? Mm. Like if you were if you were given the question, that is a hard one. It's really hard. Really hard. I've actually never really thought of it because people ask about your favorite verse favorite all the time, verse. but that's not even that's that's different than most important, right? Your favorite, you're like, yeah, this right. verse has meaning to me, but I mean, John three is going to be up there. It does contain John three sixteen, uh, right? Right. <laughs> you know, I Romans eight is going to be up there. How about Genesis one? Yeah. Well, you just submitted three options, <laughs> it, but that's a really hard one. It's like, it's like when people ask you, you know, yeah, we often talk about what's your favorite verse or this or that. I don't know which one's come to mind for you. For Those me are, off the top of my dome is John 17. Yeah. So it's uh, all about, yeah. it's all about yeah, unity. Yeah. It's like all, it's all about Christ's vision for the church and not just that they would all kind of kumbaya get along, but like, this is how the world yeah. will know. It's, it's this togetherness. I don't know. Maybe it's uh, that's a little more time sensitive in my mind because everything feels so fractured and fragmented right now that like John 17 just feels like so present. But, you know, Matthew, you know, in Matthew 22, you have 
Love the Lord your God, yep, love your neighbors yep. yourself. That's in there. But Acts, that's Acts one and two, the unleashing of the church right. and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Like, but this is sort of what we're doing. We're 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 saying this chapter because it contains this verse. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> Which that's a whole other discussion because uh, that's how I think we, you know, as as far as technology is developed, that's and for a lot of us how we interact with Scripture. It's sort of the search and scan where you know, five hundred years ago it was like sit and read, yeah. sit and meditate, and I think. I, I don't know, even just this this discussion about the most important chapter I find really interesting. So there's a guy named Pete Enns, and uh, he wrote this at PeteEnns.com. It says, absolutely the most important chapter in the entire Bible. And then I love how he starts. He says, don't you hate blog posts that start like this with such an uh, exaggerated claim? So do I. Oh, well. I could have said this post will make you rich and famous, but I'm holding back. <laughs> Still, there is one chapter in the New Testament that I think is majorly huge. Without it, Christianity as we know it does not exist. And here's the chapter. Are you ready? I'm ready. Acts 10. Acts 10. Why does he say it's Acts 10? Uh, he goes on to say, without Acts 10, you don't go to church on Sunday, have summer youth missions trips, hymnals, cathedrals, vacation Bible school, or contemporary Christian music. Heck, since so much of Western culture reflects nearly 2,000 years of Christian influence, you could say that without X-10, the West as we know it doesn't exist. And here's why he picks X-10, because leading up to X-10, everything is, uh, it's still a Jewish faith, right? It's still Jewish-focused. Um, he says, before X-10, followers of Jesus were almost exclusively, and then he writes parenthetically, maybe entirely Jewish, from Acts 10 on, Gentiles come pouring in as equal members, so it's a big deal. In Acts 10, the apostle Peter has a vision of a large sheet being lowered from heaven by its four corners. On that sheet were all sorts of animals considered unclean in Judaism, and a voice tells Peter, you know the story, go and eat, kill and eat. Uh, and he says, no, I can't do that. Uh, and the story goes on and on. But basically, he says this is the most important chapter because it is at this moment uh, where Gentiles, for lack of a better word, are let in, where mm-hmm. they're welcomed in. And this becomes uh, a Jewish and Gentile um, uh, religion or faith. You know, Peter ends up being uh, the apostle to the Jews while Paul comes onto the scene. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. And uh, so ends his point is for all of you who aren't Jewish, you better be really thankful for Acts 10. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> because no everything changed at that point. And I love, I love the way he ends the whole thing. He says uh, in Acts 10, Israel's story <clears throat> ceased being just Israel's story and was opened up to the Gentiles. In order to do that, the old rules had to give way to a new and unexpected chapter. The spirit is given to all without Acts 10. You don't go to church on Sunday. So, yeah, exaggerated blog post titles aside, Acts 10 is sort of a major moment. Yeah. Which I think is really important because I I can't honestly think of the last time I heard someone even preach on this. Can you? Mm. No, not off the top of my head. I mean, I've certainly heard it. People don't stay away from it, but it's not held up like uh, like he's doing here as, as such a crucial moment, even though it really is. So that OK, so that's an interesting point. Why don't you think that's the case? If, uh, if he thinks it's such a crucial moment, why do you why do you think it's so um, I guess uncommon? So, yeah, that's a great question. I really thought about it because I guess when I heard it preached, it's it's preached as an important moment, as a crucial moment. But uh, yeah, that'd be a fascinating sermon series, wouldn't it? The most important chapters in the Bible, and you pick like five of them, and hmm. uh, and then uh, preach the whole chapter. Yeah, preach the ch- like. Chances are, it's going to be a story. It's going to be story driven, uh, and so something like this, I don't know. Just two preachers just kind of trying to spitball here. But I, I think most people see it as a big deal. I think he takes it to the next level and makes a compelling argument that 
not only is it an important chapter, but it could be up, you know, it's top three. It's one of the most important. It's an interesting one. Uh, let's put it this way. When, when I read the title, I didn't know. I couldn't guess. I wasn't like, oh, he's going Acts 10. Like, yeah, I was right. like, oh. it wasn't like a clear slam I was actually dunk. really excited. I was like, what's he going to say? I wonder. I right. wonder. And, and Acts 10 makes sense. He, he, he lays out a compelling case as to the importance of this chapter. Well, and selfishly, I'm a little excited by this as well, because uh, at Community, we wrap up our series next Sunday called The World's Gone Mad. So uh-huh. the first week was mad at me. And then last week was uh, mad at us talking about the church. Yep. But then next week is mad at them. Like who, who are the them in our mm-hmm. minds? And he seems to be implying that Acts 10 in a lot of ways is reminding us one that we were the them. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Most of us are, would fit under the category of Gentile in the first place, which I think we often forget. Mm-hmm. But this idea of like the, the walls and the distinctions and the hurdles that we often you know, put between us and quote unquote them. Yeah. And uh, I don't know this. That's why I think Acts 10 is so interesting because it does kind of work at the heart a little bit of how easy it is for us to create distinctions and fractures that don't actually like I think about, didn't we do a segment last week about uh, who claimed that the democratic party was a godless party? Was that Robert Jeffers? Oh, right. Right. <laughs> uh, whoops. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like they can be heard here every morning, <laughs> but there's, there is, there, uh, and again, I'm not saying we can't say hard things to yep, each other. Yep, and there's yep. plenty of stuff that uh, you and I have even doubled down on in terms of stuff. Christ followers have said like, that's really not helpful. But how do we how do we take Acts 10 and not just like the historicity of it, yeah. but like how do we mine what application does that have for you just as a pastor in the western suburbs of Chicago? Yeah, so it, it does inform what's coming in Paul's letters or the even the dispute that Peter and Paul are going to have in the book of Acts. And uh, but but for today, I do think, as you said, it speaks a lot to our cultures, us against them. Right. Philosophy like. Um, that that certain groups of people are either more important or more valued. And uh, to the Jews, the Gentiles were certainly second-class citizens, and right. they were enemy, and they were to be hated. To put it right, I had to put it almost lightly. Yeah, and now God kind of flips the script and is like, you know what, this faith is for all people, uh, is an exciting thing, like you said, for those of us who are Gentiles. But to the Jews of that day, you know, in Acts 10, they were probably like, I mean, Peter himself, you read it in there. He's like, no, God, I would never do that. Right, right. So I do think there is an application point here culturally about kind of our us against them. Kind of what we talked about in Scott Saul's blog yesterday. That's true. uh, Moving away from an us against them theology. uh, And again, about where value comes from and uh, and how God values all people. Well, so speaking of sort of us against them. Uh, coming up next, an article out of Christian Post. Village church staffer axed from design conference after group protest over his religious views. Mm. So we're going to talk a little bit more about what actually happens in a context like this where simply because he's on staff at some church, he's, uh, he's apparently axed from this particular conference. That's what's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. 
Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the place, but more specifically, Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, podcasts. You can find that wherever you want to. I don't even, no one has yet to tell us, by the way, that they looked for us like in a really obscure podcast platform and uh, couldn't find us. Hmm. Interesting. How many, how many podcast platforms are there? I, I literally only know of Google Play and Apple Podcasts. Because I know there are more. There are more. I get ads all the time like, ooh, try this podcast player. I'm like, oh, is I don't, that right? Yeah. I, I didn't realize there was such a market for huh, diversity of platforms. I did not either. Anywho, as I said a couple of minutes ago, here's the headline out of Christian Post. Village church staffer axed from design conference after group protests over his religious views. What is the story here? Yeah, so we've talked about Village Church before. Village Church, uh, huge church in Texas. Uh, the the lead pastor is Matt Chandler. Um, they have uh, in the Dallas area. And so uh, this story is of a guy by the name of David Rourke. David Rourke is the communications and resources director at the Village Church, uh, which with that many people is a big deal. And so... Uh, it says David Rourke, the communications and resource director of the Village Church, was recently axed uh, as a speaker at an annual design conference after the Dallas-Fort Worth arm of the American Institute of Graphic Arts protested his religious views. Let me just read how it went. Okay. The annual Circles Conference, a three-day design and development conference that brings together designers and makers from around the globe, is set to take place in September in Texas but the local AIGI, so we read that before, it's the American Institute of Graphic Artists right. or Arts, announced it wouldn't partner with the conference this year because of Rourke's inclusion as a speaker. So they took a big stand. They said, if he's there, we're not coming. The 2019 conference speaker roster includes a communication director, they wrote, of an organization that does not meet our standards of inclusion because of openly discriminatory, discriminatory policies and practices towards women and the LGBTQ community, the organization's board wrote in a recent statement. Uh, and, and so this kind of went back and forth and he got axed from the conference. He's not no longer going to be part of the conference. Says while the Circles Conference did not state which speaker was removed from the conference, Rourke said that he was the speaker uh, that was removed. His statement was this. Yesterday, I was removed as a speaker at Circles Conference. I have no hard feelings towards them, only love. I understand this was a complex situation. And the last thing I'd want to do is cause a problem or be a distraction, he wrote. And so when I read this story, it was just really interesting uh, from a couple different angles. One is uh, he's... Uh, not to diminish what he does at the church, but he's the communications director. He's the graphics guy. And it was going to be a graphics conference. This wasn't a theology conference. It wasn't anything like that, but it was uh, not guilt by association. He's signed on to the church, but uh, kind of you're part of this church. Therefore uh, also, I think there's something to be said in this uh, story as to maybe what we can expect culturally. Uh, maybe there's something to be said. We like to talk about, um, what does, uh, I'm using air quotes, persecution look like? I think it's probably more like this than we're going to be dragged from our homes <laughs> like that. Uh, and then third, so you jump on any of these. I think third, there's it's a really impressive response on his part. Uh, just going, hey, I don't want to cause division. I get why they're doing this. It's a complex situation. I love them all, and, and that's fine. It's your conference. I'm out. Uh, I think that's, I think he could have made this a lot bigger, bigger deal and so I have respect for the way he just kind of took the high road and said, okay, like I get it. I, I don't want to 
uh, go crazy. So jump in on any of those. What are your thoughts? I uh, really liked what he said here. He said, I believe that to end division and pursue unity in our world, we must be willing to listen well, to enter into dialogue and understand that we can show love, honor and dignity to one another while still disagreeing. I don't think that happened here, but I have hope that it can happen. Mm. I want the creative community to be a place where individuals of all backgrounds, beliefs, and lifestyles can learn from one another, regardless of differences, not a place where we shut each other out. So uh, there's a lot of layers to that because he's saying this is what I hope for us, but I don't think that happened here. I'm curious if you could try and climb into the, the heads of those at the AIGA making these decisions, would they see his position by association with village as more than just simply a disagreement of beliefs where they see his position as derogatory or diminutive. Is that why, is that why they felt so strongly enough or was it just kind of bending to pressure from a, uh, a mob voice that was growing louder or is it something else? I would guess, like you said, we could crawl into their head. I would guess that increasingly, uh, Places that hold views like the Village Church does uh, uh, around especially issues of LGBTQ uh, are going to be seen as bigoted or are seen as bigoted. This is a a bigger issue probably for um, for the AIGA. They're, they're probably seeing this as I don't I can't I'm not thinking of the right phrase. So I'm going to use this one anyway as a human rights issue. Right. And so. Uh, they are saying we can't be associated with an organization, in this case, a church uh, that views people in this way. Um, And I think you can understand that, man, right? Like, I think this is where the tension is in our culture right now. This is at the front end of, uh, of the tension. So I do think, I I don't, uh, I think this organization probably, it, it sounds like there's a little bit of bending to mob pressure because they were like, we're our organization will not be part of this conference. Well, if you're the conference right there, you're like, well, we can't lose a whole organization over one guy. Sure. They got, Uh, they got dollars and cents to think about. Exactly. Exactly. But I would think that there's that. I think this is a, this is increasingly going to be uh, the principled stand that that goes on on either side. And, and it's, it's something that I think, uh, we just need to realize this is this is kind of the uh, the trajectory of culture right now. Yeah, one of the uh, is how many weeks ago was it that we did we did a story on a Mike Pence commencement speech? Oh, yeah, a while ago, Taylor you, Liberty. You, I think it was the most air quotes you've done in a single segment <laughs> when you're talking about persecution. Um, but then my good friend Trish Metz, who is a super loyal, faithful listener, she sent me uh, an article, um, and the headline. Reads, I was forced out of my PhD program because of my open faith in Jesus Christ. Here's my story. Uh, that's at the College Fix if you want to read it. It's actually a really interesting story. She, she's kind of Her question was, yes, sometimes there is sort of this martyr complex, but this kind of stuff is also happening. Right. Coupled with a guy who I imagine was going to make some money off of speaking at this conference. So he's not only out that opportunity, but is also, I mean, that he takes a hit financially by yep. not being, uh, you know, by being uninvited to this conference. Are there other implications? Are there other stories like that where maybe it isn't a motor complex? Maybe there are ways like you and I are both pastors. So we're kind of celebrated for our faith in our context. And I think I have very little real life experience. I mean, I've been ridiculed. Don't get me wrong. And I've, I've certainly been made fun of, but I, I don't think I have a really great sense of stories like this guy who was forced out of a PhD program. And I'm sure there's nuance to that story too. Maybe he was being belligerent. I don't right, I mean, right, I've read right. the story. It doesn't seem like he was. Um, 
So how do you how do you reconcile some of those real stories where, yeah, people are legitimately taking hits for their faith right here in the West, in the United States. And so we can't just paint with a broad brush. Say, hey, Americans, you don't really know persecution because you're not dying for your faith. Right. Well, that's OK. Those are different categories or different things. Yeah, it, I think we you bring up a great uh, some great questions. Or I think that we have to hold these up as legitimate things that people could face right now, um, that these aren't one offs that uh, guys for your faith, it made increasingly look uh, at odds with our culture. I would really love to know if this guy still went to the conference. Mm. I wonder if that um, and I, I wouldn't fault him for going or not going, but um and I also wonder if a church like the village church, if their learning experience from this is we're going to stop sending our people to, to try to like speak and do stuff at, at these types of conferences, or is it like, no, we still want to be out there in the world. And we understand that it's a complicated place. I, I, I would love a follow up. Uh, to what would you store. do if you were the village church? I think I would try to respond the way he did. And I would keep, if asked to do something else, if Matt Chandler or the creative arts guy or the musicians are asked to do something, I, I would still send them for sure. I would still send them. And you'd still like to attend the conference this year too. Like if you're this guy, uh, sure. If it's local, I don't know if it's local. Like, I don't know. I might not now go, full, you know, make a huge effort to be there, but if it's local, it, uh, I'd probably still go. Yeah. I think I, I love the way the guy responded because I think that most of us would, at least it seems to be the way our culture goes. Most of us would just now come out swinging. Yeah. He's like, Hey, this is problematic, but I don't want to be the divisive one. Uh, here's where we go. So uh, an yeah, interesting story. Because that. My guess is we're going to be reading more stories like this in the future. Yeah, probably. All right. Uh, last week we did a story about Amazon selling more than $240,000 of a uh, liturgy of the ordinary fake. New information has come out about that story. We actually have uh, Kate Shellnut who wrote that article and is the associate editor at Christianity Today on the phone. She's going to join us to talk about not only that story, but the new developments and how we can do a better job of being mindful of those things. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a couple of places uh, on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also find us at 1160hope.com plus wherever it is you get your podcast. Any platform you can think of, we're there. And uh, I just want to ask you one thing. If you could like, subscribe, and review, that does actually magically help us out somehow. If you already have an honest thank you. We really, really, really do appreciate that. That means a lot to us that you would take the time to do that. So uh, encourage you and anyone within the vicinity of you right now to do the same. That would help us out a lot. And uh, last week we did a story. Uh, this was the headline. Amazon sold $240,000 of Liturgy of the Ordinary Fakes, publishers say. So apparently not only have they been selling fakes, uh, what we found out later was that it wasn't just uh, that they were selling third-party fakes, that Amazon themselves were actually selling some of these fakes. And so the writer of this story is Kate Shellnut, who is the associate editor at Christianity Today. And we have her on the line to not only tell us a little bit about this story, but kind of catch us up on what's been happening since then. So, Kate, why don't you just tell us a little bit about uh, the nuts and bolts of the story and then where we're at today? There were counterfeit copies of her book being sold on Amazon. So basically, someone had complained. They asked, oh, just a, co- just a copy of the book that you got, and they recognized, hey, this isn't one that we've printed. 
once they were able to kind of look into the issue further, they noticed between the number of third-party sellers kind of testing what kind of books they were selling and then basically judging the rankings and total sales of the book versus the amount they knew they had printed, that they were able to calculate that this was a really widespread problem for Liturgy of the Ordinary to be 15,000 books wow. and $240,000. Um, so they had filed some complaints with Amazon at that point and had a little bit of a slow-going time trying to get uh, those counterfeit versions and counterfeit sellers off. Um, and finally, the heads of thumbs on the back and celebrated, okay, the counterfeits are gone. You know, when you press the buy button, now you're going to be buying from Amazon, which means you're going to be getting a copy from us, you know, that we made uh, from IDP. Um, but then, as so many people turned out to support Tish because this is such a popular book, really well-received, great spiritual formation book. Um, everyone said, oh, we're going to buy extra copies. And then they get copies that had all of those telltale signs of it being a fake. The quality of the paper is different. Wow. The printing is different. And so the question then was like, okay, what gives? We thought we were doing things, you know, by the book right to support uh, Tish. And we were able to, to, to find out that actually Amazon was also selling counterfeit copies um, that had been mixed up in their supply. And so the counterfeits are still out there um, and we're still having to work towards a solution for um, for how to stop this and make sure that uh, that they're getting the money that they deserve for the book and the book isn't being stolen and sold illegally. That is, when we talked about it the other day, and now to hear you say it, is just dumbfounding to me that this is even, I just never knew something like this happened. Uh, is you, you use the word widespread. Is this happened with a lot of books on Amazon or was she just unlucky that it was her book? Uh, what are our thoughts about that? Do we even know that? It's kind of hard to tell how widespread this problem is. So on the one hand, I reached out to at least a half dozen Christian publishers, and none of them knew of cases involving their books currently. A couple had had examples where third-party sellers had taken over the buy button. Essentially, if you just go to a book page on Amazon, as we all do while we're shopping, and click add this to my cart, um, that default usually is the Amazon stock of the book. But every once in a while, another seller will get so popular or have so many copies or push a cheap enough version that they take over the buy button. A couple of cases where, oh, we've had file a complaint, go through the process to, to get that back to make sure that people were buying from us um, and not third-party sellers. Um, but none of them had had this example of, of counterfeiting being uh, so widespread. If we look outside of Christian publishing, um, just a couple of weeks before um, this news came out about uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary, the New York Times had done a big piece um, exposing the same kind of problem happening across uh, genres of books, including textbooks, medical books, um, classic, you know, literature. So one of the examples that they used, that which to have the intense, was the idea of, oh, if you're looking at a medical book that tells you dosing for a antibiotic, and you happen to get a copy where the, you know, the ink is blurry because it's not the legit version, that could cost you a life. Oh. Um, so they were trying to say. Counterfeiting isn't just a matter of which is also a problem. It can also be dangerous and have, you know, 
more implications. So that that was one big exposure uh, that happened. And one reason that they can't tell how widespread it is is that Amazon would be the one who holds all the information. And in some people's mind, Amazon has little incentive uh, to actually crack down uh, on issues of counterfeit sales because a sale is a sale through their site. Right. Gosh, there, there's so many implications there that I, ne- I never even thought about. And I'm curious for anyone listening who's, you know, they're not a reporter, they don't work for a publishing company, like what advice or counsel or insight would you give just to the average consumer, the average shopper to, to be more mindful or to ask better questions or like, like what can we just be doing uh, in our regular kind of shopping lives to kind of better counteract some of these things? Yeah, I, I guess it's hard to offer a comment or advice without taking a stance here, yeah. but if your number one priority is I want to support an author and make sure that she gets the most um, out of the book, out of what I pay for the book as possible. Your best option is to buy directly from a publisher. Right. Uh, that, that it'll be a matter of you going to InterVarsity Press, their website. And if you're buying from them, and a lot of times they are going to have discounts and try to price competitively. It won't be the same as Amazon, but there's a reason for that. Those discounts, you know, cut into somebody's profit. Right. So if if you're buying as like a patron, I'm buying because I like this author and I want her to keep writing more books to have good sales. um, Then that would be the best for you to do. But people understand, authors understand too, that sometimes, you know, you're just out trying to get a gift. You want to get a deal. You maybe can't afford a, the, the big price if you're going to be buying in bulk for your church. But they know that you're going to have to buy from Amazon from time to time. Yeah. Um, so it depends on what your priorities are. The other thing is if you have a Christian bookstore in your town, which as we know with the closure of um, of Lifeway and Family Christian Stores is maybe now rarer, another priority of yours might be to support that Christian bookstore. So you almost have to think of um, when I'm a consumer, I'm not just out there buying a product for the sake of me having a product. Right. So what kind of system am I supporting? So maybe just asking yourself those questions. Yeah, and I'm wondering now, in this case specifically, if somebody, again, this book was wildly successful, if somebody has this book, how would they uh, go about making sure, like, can you return the book and go buy a new one in order for her to get her money? What would you suggest to people who might suspect that they bought a counterfeit book on Amazon? Yes. So Amazon knows that um, this incident has been publicized and they're being, I think, a little more uh, generous than, mm. than in a typical case, knowing that, okay, a lot of people are upset about it. So they do have this A to Z guarantee, which basically if you buy a product that isn't the product that you were shipped, which in this case, you were buying what you thought would be the authentic book from Tish, right. and you end up getting a fake, then you're supposed to be able to return that at any time. Mm. So you can file a complaint with Amazon and return that book. Um, they recommend, uh, IVP and Tish recommend getting a refund from Amazon and then buying um, directly from them so that you're not caught in the case that many people were caught in just last week where they bought replacement copies only to get yeah. more counterfeits. Yeah, crazy. Uh, yeah. Well, you've been listening to Kate Shellnut, the associate editor at Christianity Today. We're talking about this story from last week about Amazon selling more than $240,000 worth of fake publishes of Liturgy of the Ordinary. And we're so grateful for you taking the time to kind of not only update us on the story, but to give us some really practical challenges on what to do with that. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you. We really, really appreciate your time. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. How are you? Welcome back to The Common Good. (laughs) You laugh every time I do any kind of different... I do. I want to be conversational. I want someone to be driving in the car and think, oh, man, they're talking to me. Yeah, this guy just said hi to me. We're hanging. Hey, you. No, don't look over your shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> it's you. I'm talking to you. How are you doing today? Be honest. Just pretend we're sitting right next to you. Let's dish. <laughs> let's, let's dish. I've literally never said that in my entire life, and I hope to never say it again. Hi, you. Let's hey, dish. Because hey, that's how you talk to people that you know. Hi, you. Hey, hey. Yes. Hi. Yes. <laughs> it's like a, that's a very, very needy, extroverted person. Hey, hi. 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 Hello, hi. Hi there. Hey. <laughs> my name's Ian. You can be... <laughs> That's kind of what our whole intro feels like. Here's yeah. where you can find me on Facebook. Also, there's a website. Also, I have a podcast. Like, okay, I'll man. come to your house. Yeah, I'll come in the yeah. day. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to cook a meal. I'm going to juggle. Uh. I ride the unicycle. I do ride the unicycle, actually. Stop. It's true. No. A lot of my... It's true. You literally have the ability to ride a unicycle. I don't know how else you could have taken that. <laughs> when is the last time you rode a unicycle? Oh, it's probably been a couple of years. But you could hop on one right now. You think and just... Hundred percent. Yep. What is the story behind? I decided to learn to ride a unicycle. You're not going to believe it. I will probably. Will you? Yeah. You're gullible. We talked about this. Is that what it is? <laughs> nope. Uh, so my mom's side of the family. Every year we rent a series of cabins uh, up in Alpena, Michigan. I okay. love Alpena, Michigan. It's beautiful. And um, all of my uncles on my mom's side ride. They've they've all been riding since they were like in high school and college. And uh, because because there's like a thousand of us, like we're only the fourth largest family with seven kids. So wow. I have a ton of cousins. It's so much fun. So when we were about eight, nine, ten, you know, I'm kind of the older, the older kind of branch of the cousins. They started teaching us and then we just kept having more and more cousins. So we started teaching them. And some of our uncles even helped us buy our first unicycles. In fact, we invented a sport when we were up there. Um, we took down the net on the tennis courts and we played unicycle hockey which is the most dangerous sport I've ever played in my life. <laughs> because think of a unicycle. Now imagine a hockey stick. Yeah. Now imagine people face planting all over the concrete. Like it is so wow. silly and so much fun though. Do you own a unicycle now? Like uh-huh. do you have one in your garage? Yep, I do. You need to bring that in sometime. Why? What? That's not this hallway right That here. does not translate to radio at all. <laughs> no, I just want to see it. Like, oh, you want to see me yeah, ride the unicycle? I do. I do. Well, I knew to juggle before that, so I can, I can actually ride and juggle at the same time. It's no, not... You grew up in a carnival family. I did. <laughs> People have told me that, actually, even before the unicycle. Some of the cousins learned the unicycle. Some learned the trapeze. <laughs> some learned... <laughs> Speaking of youth sports, how's that? Segway. Only, no, it's not a segue. It's a unicycle. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> I actually don't even. Sometimes I, I can't keep I up don't, with your bad jokes. I know. I just can't keep up with them. Yeah, you're not the only one that feels that way. Uh, I don't even really want to read the article, but nope. uh, it's a long one. It's interesting, um, but the headline kind of caught my attention, and it's something that you and I have talked about on the show, off the show. Off mm-hmm. is that the way you talk about? Yeah, yeah, normal conversation on the show and off the show, on and off. ESPN.com. These kids are ticking time bombs. The threat of youth basketball, which. When I was sort of talking to you about this article, you're like, oh, I can talk youth sports <laughs> for hours. So, I, I you can. know, you have the general gist of the article. I'm more curious. Um, one, does it have a case? Two, 
Are there real threats? And three, what do we what do we do about it? So this article in particular, you should go read it. It's at ESP, ESPN.com again. And uh, because it is specifically around the changing culture of youth basketball, that it's no longer just high school to college, college to the pros, but it's this whole AAU system. And uh, I'll give you the one quote from this director of sports medicine research and education at Emory College at Emory University says kids are broken by the time they get to college. Whoa. And so this is particularly about basketball, but man, I think it's an open door into just what youth sports are like in general. Mm. Again, I've got my, my daughter, my oldest daughter, who's going to be a sophomore in high school. She what she didn't play a lot of sports growing up. Um, that wasn't kind of her thing. Although now in high school, she plays tennis, which is cool. Uh, but my younger two, my son literally just finished his first year of travel baseball. Mm. Uh, like on Sunday and uh, my youngest daughter is just this past year got into travel soccer. Oh, right on. And so my family has entered into this kind of whole other world of travel sports. And it's, it was awesome. I loved his, his travel baseball year. Uh, But man, he's a, he's going into sixth grade. He played 45 games. 48 games. No kidding. Which was great. It was a lot of fun. And these coaches were great. So they didn't like run these kids into the ground. And right. it wasn't like always the same kids pitching and the same kids here. Um, but it was pretty hardcore. And what I learned by entering into the youth sports world are a couple things. Um, you have to be really careful not to allow your kids to lose the fun. Right. Just the fun of sports. Uh, and it can get really expensive and really crazy. Uh, so... Besides the registration fees, you end up in uh, people doing, you know, private instruction. And uh, my church right now, we're in a warehouse and we share a warehouse building with one of the largest youth sports facilities in the Midwest called the Perfect Swing in Mm. Darien. Mm. Uh, There are eight year olds, say they're at all hours just running and playing like it's it's pretty wild, man. And, And so I go back and forth because. Uh, the reason we put our kids in the travel sports is because it has really decimated the park districts. Mm. Uh, those the the level of competition, just to be blunt, just isn't that good. Uh, and so you got to decide if your kid loves the sport and right. wants to play, what are you going to do? Uh, but it is just a different world of pressure. I, I think I told this story a couple months ago on here. Uh, a friend of a friend. So a friend of mine told me this story about a friend of his whose son had a full ride to go to a D1 baseball school. And uh, two weeks before he was supposed to go to college, uh, I think he was going to University of Michigan. Uh, Two weeks before he was going to college, uh, this kid went to his dad and was like, I hate baseball. I don't play more. And the dad was like, what? They had done all the travel, all the private instruction, all the right stuff, all the best stuff. And the dad decided to try to figure out how much money they'd spent on their kids' baseball. That's a losing game. <laughs> so obviously just completely guessing. Because how do you go back to when he was 11? And, yeah, right. Uh, and he, as best he could, uh, estimated that number to be $250,000. Wow. And that's what I mean, man. It gets it can get crazy. It's not... There's big business in youth sports right now. Yeah. Like most of these people aren't doing it. These leagues aren't doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They're making money. <laughs> sure. And when you can do both, by the way, you can, you can, but anytime. And like the coaches, like on my kids' teams, they're not getting paid. So I feel good about that. But anytime you enter in money and business, it's, uh, it changes things. It really does change things. And so for parents out there, what I would say is, uh, most 99.9% of you out there, myself included, your kids aren't going to the major leagues. 
They're not going to be the next girl on the Dang, World harsh, Cup. Harsh, Brian. I know. They're not going to be on the World Cup team. What? Uh, they're not going to be the next NBA All-Star. Uh, so try to keep a perspective and don't be that parent who cares more about their kid's uh, success on the field than the kid cares about. Like, yeah. Maybe have some perspective. And I think this culture of youth sports is really tearing at that. I talked to a dad the other day whose kid plays hockey. Yeah. Uh, for one season, the, the price tag was ten grand, And you're like... Man, this is like okay. Wait, okay. I want to ask you a question. Yep. Is is there a time that it is appropriate for the parent to care more about the sport than the kid? Probably. You know, if the kid has made a commitment and they're like, "I don't want to go," right. I don't like. I think so, but man, you, you can't just you can't just let the kids agreed commitment, dedication, or excitement for it drive the whole thing. Agreed. Right? But but if I had a nickel for every, and they're usually dads. Sometimes moms are the more belligerent ones. Hmm. But if I had a nickel for every time you saw a parent at one of these games, clearly caring so much about each and every bat of their, and you're, their kids are the ones that look stressed. They're the right. ones slamming the, that's what I saw in the, in kind of this travel league. Like kids were crying after making one out and you're like, where's that pressure coming from? Yeah, right. And they're throwing their bat. You're like, where's that they're learning that? From? Yeah. Like, yeah. where's that? But part of that could be on pressure. the coach, right? Part of that's yeah. on the, on the team's leadership. So I would say if you're a parent out there getting into this kind of youth sports, be real, real discerning about the coach you put your kid under. Yeah. And uh, make sure you do your homework on that and just understand what the priorities are. They're still kids, right? Uh, they're still kids. Allow them to enjoy playing sports, allow them to be kids. Well, and that's, what's tough about it because obviously most people would sit here now and they condemn belligerence, mm-hmm. but they don't think they're being belligerent. Right. So that's where it gets all squishy because no one agrees on what is too much. Right. Yep. I'm so I should care for my kids well being and they're learning life lessons and yep. they need, they need to have this kind of instilled in them. And I'm, you know, in 10 seconds, how do you, how do you discern that? If that's you, so for us, uh, it became interesting to see, For take my son with his baseball this year, it became really interesting to, to discern how he was talking to me about baseball. Like You could mm. tell when your kid feels pressured by you, and if he was like, uh, almost like, hey, how'd you do today? Yeah, I went 0 for 3, as opposed to like, hey, and then I always answered that with like, but did you have fun? Yeah. Was right. it a good game? Did you try hard? Like, sure. I think we know. Yeah. We know when we're kind of taking our... Um, our identity through our kids. And the man, does that happen in youth sports a lot? Uh, probably sure happens in music, probably happens in drama. We're any putting endeavor. this pressure totally. on our youth. That's very dangerous. Totally. hundred percent. Well, let's take the pressure off then, Brian, to, end, to <laughs> end the show. The opposite of pressure is about to happen. Uh, we end the show the same way every day with some interweb insanity stories that Brian and I have not seen sound effects. We have not heard. That's what's coming up next as we close the show on the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey, everyone, that music can only mean one thing. No, it should only mean one thing. It probably means multiple things. Eye of the Beholder. Nope, you're not beholding. You're listening. What's the auditory version of beholding? Uh, The hearing? Sure. (laughs) Nope. Nope, but I have absolutely, as you're saying, I have absolutely no idea. That, oh gosh. Let's spend some time talking about this. What is the auditory version of beholding? <laughs> I guess just listening, but that doesn't sound right. I don't, I mean, I really wanted a fancier word to come to mind, but I don't have it. Anywho, this is The Common Good. My name is Ian. Brian's here, too. The way we end the show is some interweb insanity stories that our executive producer, Keith Conrad, have found. Delivered to us with a smirk on his face, a twinkle in his eye. They're face down on our desk. We have not read them. We're going to read them sight unseen. We're going to listen to the sound effect. 
sound unheard. <laughs> I am really not. I need to. As soon as this is done, I'm going to thesaurus.com. I'm going to figure out some ways to talk about the ear stuff better. Anywho, Brian Fromm, why don't you kick us off? Canada. Family's escaped llama returns home after more than a month on the loose. Oh. <laughs> Whoa. What was, was that? that? John, was that a llama? I was not. I, I was honestly, not I'm that. so unfamiliar with an I llama. I responded the same way when I heard it. I'm like, that's a sound a llama do you, makes? Do you, do, you, do you think he alpacated his bags before he left? <laughs> I'm going right into this. A British Columbia woman said her escaped llama returned home on her own after more than a month wandering loose. Jessica Udchitz said Coco the llama uh, said Coco the llama that she and her family brought to her their Clinton home in April to help watch over their goat herd escaped from the 25 acre farm in June and returned to the property I didn't know they looked over goat herds she wandered back up our driveway we corralled her with lots of people and sticks and I was able to place the rope on her neck she's back in her pen enjoying cold water and veggies uh she said the three-year-old Coco had visited her property multiple times since her initial escape, but had always evaded capture. Hey, I'm a llama again! Wait. <laughs> that is top three favorite cartoons of all time, by the way. What was that? I, didn't, I missed Emperor's that. New Groove? Oh, I do remember that one. That was a good oh, one. Man, that was so good. good. That all was right. Good. California. California love. The suspect nabbed after using stolen credit cards while wearing name tag with his <laughs> real name. Nice. <laughs> California law enforcement authorities arrested a man who has been using an elderly person's credit cards for months after he was spotted wearing a name tag on security footage. The Placer County Sheriff's Office posted on Facebook that they had been trying to get a hold of Chris Thomason since March on felony identity theft. Which, why are you just trying to get a hold of him? Mm. Shouldn't you be... Arresting him? Holding he was arrested him. July 8th after he was seen on security footage in a store wearing a shirt that said, Chris, in embroidered letters. That was enough for authorities to track down Thomason in 20 minutes after asking for help on social media. That was really stupid. Yeah, that's a good go-to. Missouri, this Missouri baby was born on 7-11 day at 7-11 p.m., weighing 7 pounds and 11 ounces. What sorcery is this? <laughs> I don't know that there's much more to this story. Yeah, that, I just see a lot of those 7-11 numbers. 7-11 <laughs> day typically means free Slurpees, but Rachel Langford of St. Louis gave birth to a baby girl on July 11th. They yes. named her Slurpees. <laughs> no, they didn't. No. Uh, that's not all. Baby Jamie Brown was born at 7-11 p.m., weighing 7 pounds and 11 ounces. Yeah, we already knew that. I thought it was weird at first, and I didn't know that the numbers meant so much. A lot of the times during pregnancy, I would look at the clock, and it said 7-11. Although a bit freaked out, both mom and baby are doing well. Thank you. Come again. Oh, no. Is this Yeah, from Apu. Yeah. Apu, yeah. Either way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pennsylvania, man says DoorDash delivery driver ate half his food before delivering it. Nice. <laughs> Didn't we just do a story like this <laughs> last week? Uh, the convenience of ordering food to your doorstep with the tap of a finger can be tempting, but can also come with issues. Chris Payton of York County says he ordered food from Dickie's Barbecue. Sounds delicious. In West uh, West Manchester Township, using DoorDash, a food delivery app that sends its own drivers to pick up orders from restaurants, uh, delivering it right to your door. After the driver dropped off his food, he says he opened up the box and discovered... Half of it had been eaten. <laughs> Two of the six ribs he ordered were gone, and what appeared to be bite marks were left behind. I was just dumbfounded. I was really shocked that something like that would happen, said Chris Payton of York County. Just uh, threw up in my mouth a little bit. <laughs> I, had a, I had a friend of mine. He got fired from DoorDash because he took a sip of a milkshake 
on his way up to the door delivering oh. the milkshake. I'm way like, dude, up to the door. I'm like, if you're gonna do that, yeah. drink some of it in the car. Or the hubris, something. the hubris yeah. to pull that off. Yeah, yeah come fr- on now. Your friend needed to be fired. Seriously, <laughs> I told that. I'm like, dude, come on, you deserve it. It'd be awesome if they delivered the, the ribs and stuff, like the barbecue with just like you know how when you just covered on his face, sauce yeah. on your face, like what, what? That's nothing. Or like as he delivers them, he goes, here are your ribs. They're delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Last one's from Australia. Four kids steal their family's car and run away on a 600-mile road trip. I think this is a movie. Four adventurous children between the ages of 10 and 14 packed a stolen family car with fishing rods and took off on an epic 600-mile road trip along the Australian coast. One of the children left a goodbye note for their parents before leaving for the mammoth journey, which ended several hours later when police tracked down the parked car along the highway. The kids likely shared responsibilities during the 578-mile trip uh, from Rockhampton in Queensland to Grafton in New South Wales. Uh, the runaways were taken into custody at 1040 and can now face charges. Police triangulated a cell phone signal to find the vehicle. Missing person appeals were made by police. The journey made by the youngsters usually takes more than 10 hours, hugging the eastern Australian coastline and crossing through the cities of Brisbane and the Gold Coast. You kids can't keep your heads to yourself. I'm going to turn this car around and there'll be no Cape Canaveral for anybody. <laughs> That's a good reference. I hope people still like this is how we end the show because it tickles me. It makes me laugh. Every single time. Well, tomorrow we're going to talk about a couple of things. Uh, more than half of people wear headphones just to avoid talking to people. <laughs> uh, apparently clutter is a trigger of stress and anxiety and a whole lot more. Thanks for joining us on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.